So here, here's what was going to happen. This was going to be kind of the capstone sermon in the series. And as I began to delve in and, and see all that the Lord has for us here, it was either going to work out like this. You guys were going to be here to 1.30 this afternoon, or, or we're going to break it up in a couple of sermons here. So I decided to do the latter for your sake and for my own. We're going to break this up into two sermons, looking at being fully armed for battle, just how, how the Lord clothes us with himself for the battle that's at hand spiritually. The big idea of where we're going today is this, we stand in God's provision, not for God's provision. We stand in God's provision and not for God's provision. Many years ago, there was an emperor so exceedingly fond of new clothes that he spent all of his money on being well-dressed. The whole city always remarked on the emperor's latest fashion trends. One day, two swindlers come into the city, and they let it be known that they're kind of a big deal, got some stuff going on, they're, they're, they know what's going on. And they were weavers, and they told everyone that they could make the best clothes that anyone could make. And not only were their clothes amazing, but these clothes had a wonderful way of becoming invisible to anyone who was unfit for his office or his position. And the emperor thought to himself, I have to have these clothes. I've got to have these invisible clothes. I mean, could you imagine? He, he could know. He could walk around in the kingdom, and, and anyone who was unfit for their job, he could be able to tell if they were unfit or not. So he paid the weaver an amount of money to start the project. And then for the next several days and weeks, he would send the noblest people to go and check on the progress because he wanted to put these bad boys on. But no one was able to see anything. But because no one wanted to be classified as ignorant or incompetent, by the king, they all lied and reported back to the king that the clothes were amazing. They were the, the most beautiful things that they had ever seen before. Now, the day had come for the emperor to try on his new clothes. So he unrobed himself, he put on his new clothes, and then he proceeded to parade himself around the town. No one had the courage to be honest with the emperor until a little child piped up. And here's what he said, hey, mom and dad, he doesn't have any clothes on. The emperor is walking around naked. So the whole town began to join in the outcry, and the emperor proceeded to shrug them off because at this point he had too much invested into his invisible clothing. Now, this is an old tale that has been translated to many different languages, the, even a movie, The Emperor's New Clothes. And, and here's the deal of why I share this story with you. As we look at the armor of God, some of us as Christians are walking around thinking that we're clothed in God's armor, and we're really walking around naked. We think we're clothed because we're disciplined, because we read our Bible, because we do all of the religious things, yet we're not standing in what God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. It's, com it's completely possible for us to do all of the right things in our mind, yet not be clothed with the, the provision that God has actually given to us. I find it interesting that, that Paul talks at the, at the end of his letter about spiritual warfare and then about the armor of God. Basically, what's happening with this is that Paul is saying, hey, this armor of God, this, this, this armor that I'm talking about is, is everything I've described in Ephesians 1 through 5. Now you're to stand in this. Brian Chappell says it like this. When we begin to, to point to our godly practices as the source of our spiritual protection, our virtues become tools of unbelief instead of avenues of worship in which we deny our need for grace and assert the rule of self. We gain the confidence to rely on God's armor when, on Scripture's authority, we perceive His protection to be as real 
as the armor Paul observed on the soldier guarding him in prison when he penned these words. Think about that. Paul's in prison when he writes these words we're about to read. And he sees this armored guard sitting next to him. And he's thinking about everything he's written to this church. And he says, God is so much stronger than that. Think about all the provision we have in Christ as Christians. So if you wouldn't mind, let's read God's word. Ephesians 6, verses 14 through 24. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all power and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to stand on it and in it this morning as we get into it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What I don't want you to walk away this morning thinking is this. Man, if I just, if I just fasten the belt of truth a little tighter, then I'd be good. Or if I just made sure that the, that, the, that the the breastplate of righteousness was on, you know, a little more snug, then I'd be able to, to defend myself from the enemy. You see, it's, this armor of God is not what we're doing. It's about what God has done. That's what Ephesians is all about. So that's, that's the lens I want you to hear this scripture from this morning. So without further ado, let's get into the armor. 614, the belt of truth. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So here's my question. Why does Paul start with the belt? Last time I checked, when I get up in the morning, the first thing that I put on is not my belt. Right? It'd be pretty embarrassing. I'd be like the king right now, right? So why does he talk about the belt first? Because if we take off the belt, all the other armor falls off. It's the most critical piece of armor because it holds everything together. He says, stand therefore, and, and in that therefore, what he's saying is, is what I'm saying right now reaches back into what I've just said in these, these five chapters before this. We're able to stand because of that. Now, notice he doesn't say, hey, go get to work, go, go, uh, go do everything you can and, and, and find the belt of truth and make sure that you buckle it on tight and, and make sure you keep it on all the time, but he says, no, stand. Last time I checked, standing wasn't exactly a way to win a battle. And it's because we're not really fighting a battle as we think about it. God has already fought the battle and he's already won when Jesus rose from the dead. And so now we get to stand in the truth that Jesus is king and that he's reigning right now. As Americans, we are so accustomed to getting to work. We rarely have time to think about our work before we get involved in our work. But he calls us to stand in our work. We are, we are easily tempted to view spiritual warfare as this kind of on again, off again kind of a thing where we say, okay, well, the enemy's not really coming after me now, so I can kind of take off the, the armor and kind of leave it in the closet and get on with life. But Paul doesn't talk about that at all. He, sa he says, put it on. Put on the new self. Put on the armor of God. Stand in the provision of God. We don't take it off because the war doesn't end. Between now and when the time Jesus comes back, the war will continue. But for the Christian, the battle's already been won. 
The language in the Greek reads like this. Gird your loins with the truth. Gird your loins. I don't know if you know what girding your loins means, but basically a Roman soldier would, would kind of pull up his tunic and he would, he would tie it around his waist so that he could be ready for battle. Now, I had a picture of that, but I, I thought I, I didn't want to make anybody stumble, so I didn't want to show that up on the screen. But 1 Peter 1.13 kind of says it in a different way. He uses that same Greek word here, and it says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, interesting, not my hands for action, but my mind for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, here's the truth about the waist or the loins or our midsection, is it holds everything in our body together. When I used to play baseball, they would always say that, that it's, that it's kind of like, if you've ever seen the movie Happy Gilmore, it's all in the hips, right? It's all in the hips. So They would say that when I played baseball, it's all in the hips. It's about spinning your hips through, and then your hands follow. Our strength comes from our midsection, and so the belt of truth holds us together, and it keeps us strong. It's interesting that he talks that this belt is a belt of truth. It's not a belt of knowledge or anything else. The scripture saying in John 18 this, that the whole, the whole purpose that Jesus came into the world was to bear witness to the truth. That's the entire reason why he came. He wanted to bear witness to the truth. So what is that truth? The truth being that God loves sinners like me and you, and he redeems those that call on his name. Elsewhere in the, in the book of John, John 14, 6, we, we sang this song this morning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the, the ultimate belt that we put on is we put on Christ. So what does this practically mean for us? What does it mean to put on the belt of truth? What does that actually, do I need to go to a retailer and find, hey, can you hook me up with a belt of truth? I mean, I really need that. Can you, or do we just put a bunch of Bibles around our belt? What does that look like for us to walk in truth? Well, it means this, that the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is for our hearts to embrace the truth. And what does that look like? It looks like this, when our convictions the way that we live, the convictions that we have come into agreement with God's word. It's when our convictions come into agreement with God's So that means the truth isn't something we just talk about, but it's something that we live. It's something that we stand on. It's something that we walk out. Where instead of trusting our situations, our emotions, and our circumstances, we trust more in the word of God. Because all of those things have the propensity to lie to us. But the truth of God's word is unchanging. And so we put that on in the midst of life. And the truth is, is real power. I spent four years of ministry misunderstanding the purpose of God's word in my ministry. She was like, hey, what did you do? Well, I felt the pressure to make people like me and to like God through preaching. And a lot of people feel this pressure. Because you get up here and you kind of lay your heart out. But really what my purpose is is 2 Timothy 4.2. And this is your purpose, too, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with complete patience and teaching. We're called to preach the word. That's what it means to put on the belt of truth. So let's keep going. After we've girded our loins for battle and we're ready to roll, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, Ephesians 6.14. So I want you to think about this armor kind of physiologically. The righteousness of God protects our hearts. What is the breastplate? It protects your midsection right here where all of your vital organs are. 
You cannot live without those vital organs. The righteousness of God is very much the same way. But here's the problem with, the, with righteousness. In our culture today, righteousness is almost always viewed in a negative light. People talk about being self-righteous and, and things of that nature, but righteousness in the Bible is a very good thing. Righteousness that comes from God, it's a very, very good thing. And righteousness means a couple of different things. It means straight or kind of up to specs. Okay, you're good to go. But it also has this other kind of side of it where there's this relational component where it says that we're in a, re- in a right relationship with someone. We're, we're right with them. So how could we describe this? How would we define the word righteousness? I think this is important. I think we define it this way. It means to be made presentable. Righteousness means to be made presentable. If we're honest with ourselves, we're all unpresentable in some way. There are things about us that we don't want other people to see. This is why we get up and we look in the mirror before we walk out the door in the morning, right? This is why we put on clothes. I mean, all these things. There are parts of our personalities, parts of our lives, parts of our families, parts of everything about us that are unpresentable. And we spend our lives... Apart from Christ, if we're apart from Christ, we spend our lives trying to make ourselves presentable, trying to earn enough money, trying to get in the right neighborhood, get our kids in the right school. We'll spend our lives trying to produce something that God has already given us in Jesus Christ. That's the danger. But we're already presentable in Jesus. The law said this, produce righteousness on your own. In other words, it said this, make yourself presentable. Prove yourself. You know what the gospel says? Righteousness now comes from God. It means this, I make you presentable by faith in the one that truly is presentable, Jesus. So let's look at Romans 3. It talks a little bit about exactly what I just mentioned to you. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Get this right here. This is the hardest thing to learn as a Christian right here. It's the hardest thing to believe. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace, not through your works, but as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God had to put forth the payment for us in Christ. That's what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness. He had to send Jesus as the scapegoat, the blood offering on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. We could have this right relationship with God. Now, it's helpful for us to think about righteousness kind of the way that Martin Luther thought about it. He said, hey, look, there's two parts of righteousness. There's this passive, or he called it alien righteousness, but then there's also this active righteousness. It's kind of two sides of the same coin here. Both are necessary. Because there's kind of two types of sins. There's the, there's the sins that we've kind of inherited. You know, there's original sin. We're born with sin. All of sin to fall short of the glory of God. And then there's our sins of commission, right? The sins that we're right in the middle of and that we're, we're participating in. So he says there's, there's a need for two types of righteousness because there's two types of sins. So let's look at passive righteousness first. Through faith, 
Jesus makes us presentable to God. He presents us to God. Without, get this, any action on your part. You are, you are made presentable to God. Offered up to Him without any action on your part at all. Only to believe in the name of Jesus. So what happens is this, is that all of Christ's obedience is made mine. So I want you to think about all the righteous deeds, all the miracles, all of the ways that Jesus approached people. Those are my good deeds now because his righteousness has been imputed to me. It's been given to me. Those all belong to me. I'm no longer a failure. I'm no longer having to get my act together because I have faith in Christ. And when God sees me, he sees Jesus. This is passive righteousness. This is righteousness that's been given to us. Think about Jesus when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Think about this. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a phrase that God sings over Jesus when he's up on that mountain. He says this, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The truth about this passive righteousness that you and I get in Christ is this is that we are his sons, we are his daughters, in whom he's well pleased. There's nothing you can do to change that, because there's nothing we can do to take away the righteousness of Jesus, because he raised from the dead. He put the devil in the grave when he did that. There's no, no longer any condemnation for our sins. So let's look at this active righteousness, this other side of the breastplate of righteousness that we're putting on in Christ. It's this life of obedience that flows from the Christian's life. Because he's given us a new life, he's given us a new heart, now we have an ability to have a new obedience. You see, the problem is this, though. We tend to think that we must produce active righteousness in order to get passive righteousness. We tend to think, if I could just climb the ladder of faith a little higher, if I could just be in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith, man, I'd be good to go. Then maybe God would love me. That's not the truth. See, passive righteousness comes first. He gives it to us as a gift, as an advancement. He propitiates it to us. He imputes it to us. He gives it to us. It is ours. And now because of that, we get to live a life of love and obedience to God because of the work that Jesus has done. It is our motivation toward good deeds. It is our motivation toward good works. Let me remind you of a, of a, of a couple verses that we talked about in Ephesians 2. It's been several months now. Remind, just listen to this. Listen to the role of good work in the Christian's life. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. And get this part. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those good works that God has called us, the demonstration of the gospel to the world around us has been prepared before the foundation of the world for you and I to walk in. It's not something you come up with on your own. It's all part of God's plan that we should walk in them. And our problem with righteousness is this. We think we only need it sometimes. When things are circumstantially going well, we think, I don't really need to strap on the breastplate of righteousness today. I don't really need God's righteousness imputed to me. You know what my prayer is for you in those seasons? It's the same as the prayer is for me. God, show me my sin and show me how filthy it is. 
Show me the truth of Romans 3 that we just read, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because when I'm sitting in that place, Jesus is exalted, and he is my only hope. So your sin, your sin is the only thing in the world that there's actually hope for. And we find that in Jesus Christ. So we stand in the provision that's in Christ. And now we are found pleasing, because of Jesus, to someone that we very much want to please. We want to please the Father. Just like my kids. They want to, they want to show Dad all their drawings, and, and they, they're, they're running the door when I get home. You want to please your Father. We all do. And I've got good news for you. You have pleased Him. Let's move on to the gospel boots. This is the last piece of the armor we'll look at today. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6.15. So the boots of the gospel of peace, they kind of do two things. I think they're kind of defensive, but they're also offensive. So number one, they give us a foundation that provides protection. That's what boots do. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a sissy, and when I walk on rocks, I'm like, ooh, ah, ah, kind of walking around like that. My kids can just blaze through them. I don't know what it is about them, but i got to have shoes on. And then no matter what the terrain that you're walking on, no matter what the circumstance of life that you're walking on, the boots provide a foundation and a stability. The second thing we're looking at is this. The boots of the gospel of peace advance the dominion of the kingdom. Without the boots, how does the mission go forward? How does King Jesus conquer any more territory? How does he bring any more souls without the, the boots of the gospel of peace going forward? So let's look at the first part here. The gospel of peace is to be put on as boots. So I want you to think about this idea of having a firm foundation, a firm stability that we are able to walk on. In one of our meetings for the launch team of this church, so we just we started public worship in February, but we had this series of probably six months of meetings where we just went through the vision of the church. We talked about what the gospel was, what our role in Lawrenceville is, and what we think God's leading us into. And we kind of grew together as a family. In one of those meetings, we are talking about the role of mission in the church. And I'll never forget this, this example that one of the guys, Kevin, shared. A lot of, a lot of times people think that the gospel is, is kind of like a launch pad of a rocket ship. So it, it kind of it brings you into the kingdom, it sets you off into orbit, and now you can kind of go do your thing in Jesus. But he said that's kind of the wrong way to think about it. He said it's more like this. It's more like the foundation of a house. Now in the foundation of a house, or the foundation of your feet, if the foundation is gone, you've got nothing. The gospel is our foundation. We never get past the gospel. There's never anything deeper that New City Church will ever get to than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing beyond it. It only takes us deeper and deeper and deeper into the heart of God because this has been his, his rescue plan, his mission all along is to reach and redeem sinners through his son. So the second thing is this. The boots advance the dominion of the kingdom. So this is the offensive weaponry here. You know, you could say it like this too. These boots are made for walk-in. And that's what they'll do. But not the, uh, the Jesus version, not the Nancy Sinatra version of that song from 1966. That's actually kind of a crazy song. I don't know if you've listened to that, but anyway. It's neither here nor there. How does Jesus take dominion? How does his kingdom advance? This week at work, when you read Matthew 28, and you're thinking, how does the kingdom advance? What am I supposed to do? What does this look like? I think Romans 10 offers some hope for us in what this looks like. Let's read Romans 10, 13 through 17, as we talk about what the gospel is and what the mission of the church is. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And get this right here. Get, don't miss this right here. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So our shoes, they take us places. In this era, our feet would have been the primary mode of transportation. We wouldn't have had like a gospel BMW that's taking us around or an airplane or a tank or anything like that. Although that would be pretty cool. But he says that the, the, put on the, the gospel of peace. The readiness of the gospel of peace. So there's a, there's a danger for us in viewing this, putting on the gospel of peace myopically. That means like kind of from one viewpoint. We must see that the foundation of the gospel of peace through Jesus has a bifocal component to it. It's this. It's a both and. It's, it's a both and of the gospel of peace being about proclamation and it also being about demonstration. So it's kind of two sides of the same coin, this tension that plays out as we are about advancing the gospel of peace. One use of the word gospel before Jesus comes on the scene, this is an older word than when Jesus incarnated. So here's, here's what this word gospel would look like. There would be a war between two parties, and the war would end. Josephus talks about this in his book on Jewish wars. He said, and the war would end, and the king would send a guy to, to let everybody know that the war had ended. Now, the name of that guy would be the Yuan Gelias the bringer of good news. The euangelios, the bringer of good news. And guess what he would bring? He would bring the euangelion, the good news about the war being over. Friends, this is our mission. We are announcing to the world that there is peace with God through Christ, that the war is over. But we have a problem with this sometimes. And, and we can, in our proclamation of the gospel, we view it more as punishment than opportunity and a weapon of our warfare against the enemy. And why do we do that? Because we think that we have to do the Holy Spirit's work for him. We think that we've got to talk people into believing in God. But what does Romans 10, 17 say? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. So our role as the church is to proclaim and to demonstrate the gospel. The role of God is to save people. We're not, it's not our responsibility to save people. The Holy Spirit, what happens is when the word is proclaimed and when it's demonstrated, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of it and activates it in the hearts of believers. That's what happens. To those who would call on his name, it is activated in our hearts. So every person that's, I don't know if you've ever met someone, or maybe it's you, that, that you said, you know, I didn't really care about the Bible. I didn't really care about Jesus. I didn't care about any of that until one day something changed. Well, what changed? The Holy Spirit got a hold of your heart and he made you new. But you had to hear the word to be made new because the word is God's, it's his revelation about himself. It's the good news. So we're announcing peace that the, that the war is over, that there's hope in Christ. And that is really good news. 
through demonstration. So demonstration of the gospel is always coupled with proclamation. So in, in, our, in our culture now, there's a lot of churches that will lean more toward probably demonstration than proclamation. And, and leaning too heavy on either side is a dangerous place to be. I'm realizing the longer I've been in ministry, typically things that I want to polarize are usually more of a, a both and than an either or. And that's what happens with this too. So instead of us just being about social issues, whether it be racial reconciliation or, or whether it be rights for unborn children and things like this, those are all things we need to be about. Those are all things that Jesus is deeply concerned about. But he's also deeply concerned about advancing the mission through proclamation. If we're not proclaiming the gospel, how is there any hope for those folks that are doing injustice? That's our role, church. And I know this can feel real just inorganic and just forced. And what we've learned is kind of what John 17 talks about, is that we image God together as a community of folks, as a community of people, as a family of God together. We image him together. We proclaim the gospel together. It's not up to us to just knock on doors and and hand out gospel tracts. We image him together. We are the family of God. Hear John 17, 20 through 21. This is Jesus praying. He's praying for future believers. Listen to this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So the disciples' word, the proclamation of the disciples. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And listen to this. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our greatest apologetic church, our defense of the faith, is our community together. And the way that we invite people in to experience the tangible love and grace of God is one of the most powerful things that we can do. And this is why we think that Sunday morning is not enough. This is why we talk about missional communities so much, because we must embody the word together through the way that we live in this world. We have peace with God and with one another, and this is all about God's provision. We stand, remember this, we're going to look at part two next week. We stand in God's provision, not for God's provision. So three and a half years ago, I'll share this in closing. Or as the guys say, I always say land the plane. So I'm going to land the plane now. Three and a half years ago, Megan and I sat in our house in Greenwood, Indiana, and we contemplated whether we were going to be obedient to God or not. It's kind of a funny conversation. It extended on our drive to Chicago, too. And, and what we were contemplating about being obedient to God or not was God had called us to plant a church. And we were like, oh, and we just, we're getting ready to have our second kid. I mean, we're, things are a little dicey now. So we're getting ready to have our second kid. Things were kind of unsettling. You know, we just, we're just insecure about this. And so we received the orders from God. Kind of the command from God, he put it in our hearts, and we said, what are we going to do about this? And so we decided that, that we were going to obey God, that his spirit was going to help us in that. And so here we did. We, we stood up in front of 750 people at the church we were at in Indiana, and we said, hey, we are going somewhere, but we don't know where we're going. We are going somewhere. We think God has called us to plant a church, but we don't know where we're going. And we just want to ask you guys to pray for us. And we want to tell you that we'll be June, whatever it was, will be our last day here. We had a few months ahead of us. And so I stood up, and you'll never believe all of the uh, responses I got. At this point, we kind of known that, that Atlanta was kind of on the, on the map, but we weren't sure. And so some of the responses that we got were this, that's so irresponsible for you as a father. How could you put your family in this kind of a position? 
Another one from a very trusted friend was, uh, that doesn't sound like God's prompting. You should pray more about this. And so we're wrestling with all of these conflicting voices in our mind. And in the middle of this, a new son is born to us. His name, Caden. You know what the name Caden means? It means battle. See, we knew that when Caden was born, it was one of the, one of the hardest weeks of my life. When Caden was born, we knew what it was going to mean for us to live as Christians in this world and what it was going to mean for this little young man. That there's a battle at hand. There is a war at hand. Now, the war has already been won, but we've got to be obedient. We've got to take up the armor of God. Jesus is well pleased with you if you are in Christ. I want you to remember that today. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for good news. News that we probably don't get as excited about as we should be. And we ask, God, that you would, you would instill in us a zeal for the gospel unlike anything we've ever had before. Not, not, a, not an emotionalism or anything like that, but just, a, just a, a constant assurance and a passion to see your word go forth in our own hearts and in the hearts of others, that we, we would never be able to see anyone and say they're out of God's reach because we know that we too, if they're out of God's reach, then we're out of God's reach because all of sin had fallen short of the glory. So Father, help us this week to stand in the provision that you've given to us. All of that good news from Ephesians 1 through 5, coupled up and talking about how you protect us from the schemes of the enemy. And you wrap us with your love and your provision make us new. I pray for that. I pray for those in this room, Lord, that maybe haven't embraced this claim yet, the claims of Christ. I pray that you do something in their heart this morning. Spur them on to obedience to bow their knee to Jesus and stop trying to earn the Father's affection, realizing that it's already been won for them. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.